Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we have come to this place on this day for precisely that purpose, to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask that you remind us not only of who you are through words like those and words we read in your word, the scriptures, here in a few moments, but Lord, that you would show us who we are too and the massive discrepancy between your greatness, your goodness, your righteousness, your faithfulness, and our frailty, our being prone to wander, Lord, our necessary dependence on you for even our existence. Lord, we thank you for this place and for these people and for being together. Use all the elements of this service to bring us closer to one another, but closer to you. And by the time we're finished, Lord, may we be more like you and less like ourselves. We thank you again for the the blessing that is ours to be here now, today. We expect great things from our great God. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please be seated and welcome to church this morning. And uh, it is good to see you. It's always good to see you. I spent the majority of last week in our nation's capital or close by attending a conference, which uh, I always want to make sure you know that I appreciate the ability, the latitude to be able to get away and try to learn some things. I told some folks I'm going to D.C. to learn how to preach. Uh, but I did learn quite a bit. And uh, actually, the conference itself was in Springfield. Uh, but I did go visit some places in the capital and look at some things. And uh, it was a good, a good week. Trust your week was good as well. And uh, as always, glad to have any guests with us this morning. And uh, welcome those by way of live stream. And welcome one Special guest in particular is not with us this morning, but he certainly has a doctor's note being born yesterday. I'd like to welcome Charles Harold Johnson, uh, named Charlie for short, I believe, born to Andy and Hannah Johnson. And uh, welcome to this world and welcome to our church family. And certainly we congratulate mom and dad and grandparents And uh, this is always a privilege to make such an announcement. But let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Esther. And uh, we've got a lot to read this morning. So I will try to be judicious with our time. And uh, same deal as always. I'll try to talk fast if you can try to listen fast. But uh, 18 verses or so, it seems best to take this in one chunk. It all has to do with itself. And and the way this book works, I think this was mentioned before, some things move quickly, some things slow down and move slowly. Uh, So the pace quickens and, and slows at different places in the narrative. But this is chapter 2, where we left off from last week. And it begins with an after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, uh, 
He remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. The king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and was put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. He quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in. And in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king... She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for this narrative regarding Esther and Mordecai and King Xerxes and the details that took place regarding exchanging one queen for another. Lord, we ask that you would open to us the meaning of this passage such that we not only understand it, but are able to obey what's here and required of us. We thank you for this time in your house, your people, your word, and together for your plan and purpose. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, we'll do as we normally do, um, but we won't reread each of these verses, though we'll make points from here on after. Most of the details regarding the setting and the changes far as uh, conflict and resolution in the story itself take place in the first handful of verses. And really, verse 1 kind of is the, the pivot point from the previous chapter, which involved a grand party and uh, really the consequences of Queen Vashti's no. In verse 1 of chapter 2, there seems to be some... Uh, I don't know, looking back on what had happened, perhaps with some remorse. After these things, when the anger of the king had gone, he remembered Vashti. And the way that works, remembered, not like, oh yeah, there, that was her when he walked past a picture or something. No, he's thinking through this. And it's a sad verse. We're, we're meant to, to read regret into this story. He's realizing what he did was a, a, a dumb move. And uh, we all saw that coming, didn't we? Um, the Bible's clear in its description on wine. It, it's kind of uh, two-sided. In one way, it's described as a gift from God to be enjoyed. And then on the other hand, it's described as a mocker. And when used in the situation we saw it used, where the only rule for the party was there's no rule as far as the open bar... And it was clearly said that he was merry with wine and enraged after what Vashti did and embarrassed at that. He made a law that couldn't be undone. She's gone. And uh, maybe he still has his wine as a comfort, but he has no queen. So if we look back to verse 19 of chapter 1, the original idea when that decision was made was... To send Vashti away and then replace her with a better woman. That, that was the, the term used. We'll get you a better one. We're going to find out, it seems, that uh, better had really nothing to do with character, but everything to do with uh, submission. We're going to find one that won't embarrass you like Vashti did. So... What is meant by better presumably had to do with compliance, even if the request of the king is uh, quite absurd. So once we get into the contents of chapter 2, strangely enough, in search for this better queen, we see absolutely no um, assessment of character in the process to guarantee this new queen's quality. Um, 
it's clear what the qualifications are. And uh, number one, she needed to be young. Number two, she couldn't be married. And number three, she had to be extraordinarily beautiful. But each of those have only to do basically with appearance, which was really the only reason why he called Vashti to the party to start with. So it seems as through the whole circumstance, no one in Xerxes' palace has learned a thing Uh, but perhaps maybe have positioned themselves with more laws and legislation to um, carry this on for a second term or round or, or, or whatever you may choose to describe. Look at verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him. So these aren't his governors. These aren't his wise men. This is an altogether new group of people we haven't heard of yet. But we know that they're young and they're at his attendee, attendants. Maybe they uh, starch his shirts. Um, who knows what they do, but they attend the king. They're the ones that say, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Uh, gather all the young virgins to the harem. Let their cosmetics be given to them. You choose which one you like best. She's the one that replaces the queen. Um, there's a lot not said in this passage. You've got to be careful with arguing from silence. But there's nothing said that the candidates must apply at the Citadel's registrar. There's nothing said that this is optional. Truth is, it's not optional at all. If you're part of the kingdom, you belong to the king. And if he thinks you have what he wants, you can be taken from your family and gathered to the king's harem. And you wait your turn uh, so he can decide whom he likes best. Uh, Everyone was enrolled by virtue of being part of the empire. The empire needs no permission to draft any of these young women into the king's service. And it's probably worth noting uh, in passing that there's nothing particularly sexist about this. Because the historians tell us that every year 500 young men were taken for service of the king and castrated to become eunuchs. So the whole modern liberal thinking within America, which we don't believe is biblical, the my body, my choice, we believe God made your body and it, 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 it's his Bible that tells us what is expected of our bodies in his service. But to try to translate that back into the ancient world that'd be a joke everybody knows it's your body king's choice if the king wants it he'll take it it's i don't even know if it was looked at as exploitive it was his right his prerogative we say it's the epitome of of abuse but that's where esther lives And she takes place in this story here quite soon. Um, After an elaborate introduction, that was the first chapter, big display of the king's wealth, the king's choice to replace an insubordinate queen. But by the time you get to chapter 2, and after the first four verses, you've got this massive shift, and two comparatively insignificant people step onto the scene. And you might find that this is a lot like some 
novels or films you may have seen that would be modern, but it's the same good things as, as, as parts of good stories. You're introduced to characters that seem at the beginning to have no association with other people in the story, but the further you go, the more you find out how they're very uh, complexly interwoven. Esther's really the big character in this whole story. Ahasuerus or Xerxes is just the stooge. But she's introduced here along with uh, her cousin Mordecai. And also, uh, up until now, this book has no connection with any other book in the Bible. If, if you're watching this as a series and it's advertised as, you know, good family viewing for people who love their Bibles, after the first couple of episodes in chapter one, you're going, what is this? It's just a, a, a bunch of pagans at a pagan party with no morals acting like fools. What redeeming quality does this have at all? And then all of a sudden you're introduced with this, I think, very intriguing line. It's my favorite out of the chapter. And there was a Jew in Susa whose name was Mordecai. And then everything changed. Okay, we know who the Jews are. And we know where Jerusalem is. And we know the king who was in charge when Nebuchadnezzar took those people away. And we start to gather details that help us know this does fit the rest of the Bible. It now has a connection to God's covenant people. So the next few verses are full of details. And we'll look at them a little closer. Look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, his name was Mordecai, and then here's his lineage, son of Yair, son of Shimei, son of Kish. Ever heard of Kish before? Absolutely. Saul was from the family of Kish and was also a Benjaminite. Uh, verse 6, who had been carried away, who? Mordecai, no, his grandfather, father, uh, away as captives with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So we're able to link this up with several accounts from different prophets. So Mordecai was a descendant of Kish. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. That means he was related to King Saul, and that's going to be important later in the story when we're trying to figure out what in the world is Mordecai's beef with this man named Haman, the Agagite. Who was Agag? The king that Saul was supposed to kill, but he didn't because he wanted to display him somehow, some way, along with a bunch of the other animals that should have been devoted to destruction. Ever since that story there's been problems between those descendants so we're going to find out that uh, Haman's on the exact opposite team as far as Mordecai that'll clear up as we we move on but the point here looking at Jerusalem which is mentioned which is closest we're going to get really to some of the things of Judaism is only mentioned to say that Mordecai is not there he's in Susa He's an exile. And as a second or third generation exile, the only thing he's ever known is life in Persia. That's going to be helpful in trying to figure out some of the ways he 
chooses to do things. We're meant to see tension here. If we study this in the genre of, of literature, we find it in the way this is written. And by the way this man is introduced, a Jew in Susa. That doesn't, that, that doesn't wash. That, that's not where a Jew belongs. But then linked with these men, his past is as kosher as the golden days of Israel with its first king. But then he's named here this Babylonian name, which has as part of it a Babylonian god's name, Marduk. Mordecai is a way of saying Marduk, a pagan god. So what, what we've got here is two names and two identities. And the same is true with Esther. Look at verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. One name's Hebrew, the other name's Persian. And she's the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. When I started studying this, I thought, oh, wait a minute, I thought Mordecai was her uncle. I was wrong. Or I just listened too hard in Sunday school when I was a kid. And I wondered, did anybody else think that they were cousins or that was their uncle? I guess you think if the girl is as his daughter, he should be her uncle. It went age difference, but it's not that. Uh, Esther is Mordecai's cousin. Just like any of the other exiles, Esther had to live in two worlds. As this story unfolds, she's coming quickly to a point where she'll have to decide which one of those two worlds is going to define her existence. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, uh, Esther was also taken. Kind of saw that coming, didn't we? Especially with the description of this girl. And uh, I thought I would mention that it is very, very rare to have a description of anyone's physical appearance in the scriptures. It's just not common. You see it every now and then like with Abigail, who would be David's wife. But this is probably by far the most explicit description of someone's physical beauty, which is strange. So why is it here? Well, it's key to the development of the story. That's what places her... Uh, in a position to likely win this beauty contest, Miss Persia, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and whether one considered having what the king wanted a good thing or a bad thing, this wasn't something that could be helped. You, know, you, you hear of missionaries uh, staining the color of their skin to identify with the people to whom they serve and to blend in among the... That it's kind of hard to hide this if, if everybody knows you and you've got scouts through all the land looking for young, beautiful girls. I have a confession to make. When I was thinking about this, it just popped into my mind. She can't help. She was made that way. She can't be blamed if people look her way. Those are song lyrics. <laughs> Of, of a song I guess you don't know. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Baby's got her blue jeans on. <laughs> now you know, don't you? 
You know, I went to a conference this week and the keynote said, watch your illustrations. They will date you and they will tell everybody what you're thinking. So uh, hopefully I diversified my book of illustrations rather than grew up with a bunch of rednecks in Virginia. You, know? you, you hear that kind of music. But the point is, the fact, the, the text is very specific. She actually has more than the king is looking for as far as his list. One matches up by saying she had a beautiful face in the Hebrew. But in addition to that, it says she is also fair of form, which is not on that list. So she, she had both and uh, last week we took time in the context of uh, the graduates we recognized to talk about the currency of the empire of the world and the gold coin of, of beauty and the gold coin of health or athletics, the gold coin of intelligence or academics. And if you have those coins, doors are open to you that are not open to others. You are useful to the world, to the kingdom, for entertainment, for business, uh, for pleasure. In this way, um, I don't know if this specific point was made last week, but even the world considers each of those natural abilities. You're born with them. She can't help it. She's made that way. As such, they should never be used as a scaffold for pride. Though that's what we do. If we're smarter than someone, we think we're better. If we're prettier, we think we're better. If we have better health, we think we're better. If just genetically. God is the one that gives these gifts. And in his purpose, Esther seems to fit a unique position in order to be instrumental in God's plan for his people. And we'll work that out as time progresses. Esther should not be proud of herself, but she is in an elite category. And doors will be open that are closed basically to every other girl in the Persian Empire. Now, from the record, it seems Esther quickly adapts, uh, not only in survival, but uh, in, in thriving in her new environment. You look at verse 9, the young woman pleased him. That would be Haggai who was in charge, I think that's mentioned three times, that he was in charge of the women. He quickly provided her her cosmetics, her portion of food, with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So, one moment she's introduced as the orphan adopted daughter by her cousin in obscurity to fast-tracked with all the best in the prominent place within the harem. What do we make of that? Should we say, well, good for her. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a difficult situation, but she seems to be doing well. I think that's great. We're not given any details as to how to look at this or any details as to how she won this favor. Uh, one might say that modesty could be inferred in the way that she seems to impressed, have impressed a presumably disinterested eunuch. 
I mean, if she's resorting uh, to trying to get on his good side in, 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 a, in a wrong way, you would think it, he's not interested in that. But then again, it is said that Esther won his favor rather than found favor. We see both those in the scriptures. One seems to be active and the other seems to be passive. Joseph, Daniel, found favor. Esther seems to have won favor. Either way, she's done well for herself. Some want to compare this situation to uh, Daniel and his friends. We talked about them before. They were exiles too under uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But it's different. They were exiled and everybody knew where they came from. They all know they're Hebrew boys. And when they were asked to eat the king's meat, which they'd purposed in their heart not to do, they won an appeal. They asked the correct way and were given an accommodation. And after it was all over, they were so impressed with the way they looked that they actually praised their God and their dietary laws. It was a good thing for these guys. In this case... Esther's uh, background is, is purposefully withheld. She seems to have no trouble with the king's diet or the cosmetics or participating in the contest. Um, it, it, it has to be looked at as differently. Um, the cases are similar in some ways, but not the same in every way. And what we're, what we're left with is speaking clearly where the Bible speaks clearly, but we're not clear on this, so there's only so much we can say. Uh, and if we can't speak clearly here, sometimes we just have to be content with leaving a few things sticking out of the suitcase. And maybe later in the picture, it resolves itself. I'm not so sure that tension is not purposeful in this part. The, the, the more you read this story, and the older you are when you read it, the, the story of Esther in Sunday school class when you're a child, it's a lot different than the story of Esther when you study it in a group like this. Well, big church, that's what we call this. Big church Esther is different than junior church Esther, right? And you're trying to figure out, okay, how do you navigate all this? How much choice does she have in this matter? Is it... I mean, She's had the perfect example of what happens to a queen who has the guts to stand up and, and be the, the nail head that shows itself. What does it do? It gets hammered back down. And did it do anyone any good? Not necessarily. And would it be a stretch to say that this may be a hard call because it's complicated because of a lot of events that we don't actually have Access to. There's a lot of decisions I'm sure she made over what appears to be four years between Vashti's goodbye and Esther's hello, as far as the crown goes. A lot of things happen. We don't know what it's like to be a young girl taken from a strange family situation uh, with, with a guardian, not even a single parent home, probably didn't live wealthy, probably more on the poor side thrown into a situation she's never been in before. Maybe she learns quicker than some how to survive. 
she probably never thought she'd be the one who would win the crown. So let's just get through this. But then winds up that she's being fast-tracked. Actually winds up the queen. Does she look back and think, well, that escalated quickly? One thing led to another. I didn't expect to be here, so how can I make a concerted effort to navigate my trajectory when I don't know what's coming next? I think it's very complicated. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, it might match up with our lives more than we would want to say. I mean, there's hard things in this passage because there's sinful men and women in this passage. There's hard things in our lives because we're sinful human beings. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I don't think any one of us want to put a flow chart on these screens of our trajectory from high school to where we sit right now. I don't know that we would want to share all the decisions that were made. Many of them were dumb. Many of them were bad. Many of them were selfish. Many of them were just sinful. Or we don't need Jesus, right? So, uh, so much of life is answered by that verse that seems to just be kind of offhand in, in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things. But boy, doesn't it answer questions. How, and take both sides of the fence. You got a, a Christian home which looks like everything is there to have children grow up uh, loving and fearing God and have successful lives with happy families. And sometimes it just doesn't work like that, does it? And you wonder what went wrong. Why, why would someone choose to walk away from God's revealed truth in such a way? Or on the other side of it, horrible family situation. Someone hears the gospel, comes to faith. Or horrible situation and they grow up horrible. And horrible things happen to them. And, and you, you really wonder, how does this all work? Uh, people come to Christ maybe later in life. And it's hard for them to look at some of these things here and others realizing, okay, I should have never done this, hung out with those people, went to school there, married that person, but I have kids now. I can't start over. What do I do? God meets you where you are. None of what we read here, if we don't like, is any problem with God using Esther at the end. In other words, our failure doesn't train wreck God's plan. This whole book is God's perfect purpose through imperfect people. Right? And this is where we should be very glad for that. Um, we don't have stories in this book. We're, we, we're not involved with the likes of Xerxes or these others. But I thought it might be helpful, since things are kind of cloudy here, as to is Esther a good girl or a bad girl? Or is she exhibiting faith? Or is it selfishness? It's hard to say. 
Here's a good place to remind ourselves of some tools that will help us. And it's always good. I want to be able to be the guy who, while we're teaching and learning through a book, to give you the tools to help you do that for yourself. And we've got a whole toolkit full of interpretive principles. But here's a couple that I think fit here great. First of all, we interpret verses in the Bible by the whole Bible, not the other way around. How do we interpret a weird part of Esther? We've got a whole Bible to help us with that. We don't need Esther's story to teach our young girls how to live courageously and bravely and uh, purely. We've got a New Testament for that. It's all there. Explicitly. Jesus' teachings. Paul's teachings. Peter's teachings. In detail. And all that helps us understand this. Especially the part that we're all broken and we sin. It makes sense. You wouldn't take one verse out and then interpret the whole Bible by it. No, you take the whole Bible and you interpret your verses. So it's the dog wagging the tail, not the tail wagging the dog. It's a, it's a brilliant thing that will save your bacon in Bible interpretation. Here's another one. Read your Bible like it is a book full of bad people and Jesus. Now, here's the way we want to read our Bibles. And it's very tempting in the junior church, children's, with my children. It's, it's so easy, and you don't even know you've, you've fallen into moralism. We want to teach the Bible like there's good people and there's bad people. And God uses the good people, and He punishes the bad people. But all you've done there is just taught moralism. And you don't really need a Jesus. Because if you're a good person and God's going to use you, then you're covered. Don't be the bad person. Be the good person. Right? Be like David because he was a good person. But don't teach about Bathsheba. And don't teach about murdering her husband. Or sending an, an execution order on his deathbed to take care of one guy that was a thorn in his flesh. Almost like a scene out of The Godfather or something. Don't teach that stuff. Just teach about the smooth stones and the sling and the giant... Be a good guy like David and like Moses, except for when he got mad and missed out on the promised land. Or Noah, what happened after the flood. Do you see, it, they're all bad people. The Bible is full. Every person is bad because they're sinners, except for Jesus, who's righteous, who came here to give them salvation. If you read it that way, you're fine. If you read it the other way... You shouldn't, but you'll be surprised at how quick we can kick Jesus out of his own Bible. Because we don't need him if we've got good guys as role models, right? But if even the good guys are saved by grace like we need to be, then we can be examples. But heaven is because of Jesus. Read your Bible like it's all bad people and Jesus. And that would include Esther and Mordecai, and Haman, and Xerxes. You don't have to choose who the good ones are and who the bad ones are. They're all bad, except for Jesus. And the good stuff, if it's there, is just pointing back to Jesus and what he took care of on the cross. So Jesus is the hero. That's probably the best way to synthesize the whole thing. Esther's not the hero of the book of Esther. Jesus is the hero of the book of Esther. And all other 65 books of the Bible, Jesus is the hero. Daniel's not the hero of Daniel. 
Joseph's not the hero of Exodus. You get the point. So, if we, if we didn't have that in our toolkit, and let's just say we are looking at this morally speaking, let me show you how much of a train wreck you can get in studying your Bible without the right tools. If we don't remember principles like these and end up in the ditch, here's what the ditch looks like with Esther's study this morning. Young ladies, make yourself as attractive as you can to powerful men and then use your body for God's kingdom. Boy, I just gave the best sound bite for my ruin on YouTube. (laughs) There ever was, didn't I? That's why at the end of the messages it should be, should be something like, hey, glad you enjoyed this message. Feel free to share it with others, but do not alter them in any way without express written consent from <laughs> Wake Chapel Christian Church. Uh, do you get the point? That's how you get into trouble. We can't hold people up as, as moral standards. Only the righteousness of Jesus. Back to the story. We'll move quickly. For the inquiring mind that wants to know how does this beauty contest work, we have an official copy of the rules right there in three verses. Um, I've summarized these here. Each young woman gets, and for simplicity's sake, we'll call it a night with the king. Uh, That requires one year of beautification. And really, the, the translation's doing a hard work here. You see some variation in your translations. It seems like they spent time in these cosmetics, like soaking in myrrh. And who knows what it did to them. There's a year's worth of it, six months of one, six months of the other. Some describe it as ointments or lotions. So at least one perk of this contest is one year worth of free creams and lotions. I mean, whatever you want, you've, you've got it. Each young woman gets to take whatever she wants with her on her night with the king. This is one that's just, it, it, this is not a great picture. In the evening she goes in, in the morning she comes out. That's about it. And the world is populated with a lot of males that treat their women the same way. I'll call you if I need you. But I want you to get out of my way. i got things to do in the morning. If you ever identify a man like that, uh, cross them off the list. Then throw the list away. Same as last time. uh, Telling the woman to come out wearing what he wanted to impress. Any boyfriend that ever tells you what to wear to impress any of his buddies dump him right then and tell everybody else so they don't get mixed up with an don't do that this isn't right but that's how this worked and that's how the empire of the world works because really all we want anyone else in our lives for is what they can do for us Remember the heart that's desperately wicked you can't know? This is what Paul would describe as hating one another and hated by one another. But when the goodness of Christ came, He saved us and changed all that. 
This is the way the world looks without Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us, but it's an awful story. Afterward, she's considered one of the king's concubines. She's taken from one harem to another because now she's been with the king. So she resides in a separate harem to live a plush but pointless existence. If he never calls her again, that's the end. She'll never marry. She'll never have children. She'll never have a family. If the king has a heart attack, somebody will replace him. And then it's up to him what happens to the rest of them. We know what Absalom did with his father's harem. And if they're conquered by another nation, they may be the ones to die first and most brutally. This isn't a contest anybody goes home from. You know, hurricanes came home last week. They get to try again next year. This, this is for keeps. And she's only allowed to visit the king again at his request. So those are the rules. What happened? The whole story seems to funnel down to Esther's turn. And according to the date that's been given, it's four years since they had a queen... And I've summarized this too. When the turn came for Esther, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So from the greatest to the least. Some got gifts, the others got a tax holiday. But it was a big deal. And she seems to have fit Vashti's crown. It's now Esther's crown. Banquets in the book of Esther come in pairs. First banquet, one queen's out. Next banquet, another queen is in. Later, there's a banquet for one guy. No, he's going to be hanged. Banquets come in pairs. But at this point, what's in this for me? You know, there's different ways you can transition from, okay, I know what was. Well, help me with what is. Um... We never want to read the Bible as only looking as what's in this for me, but what's in this for everyone. And we'd never read our Bible saying, this is what it means to me, because it means what it means regardless of what we think it does or it doesn't. That's, again, interpretation. We've got to figure out what it meant, because that's what it means. It doesn't change. But what's in this for us? What are we supposed to do with it? How do, how do, we, how do we... How shall we then live? Um, we've been adding uh, to a list both weeks we've studied. I think we can add a few more. We'll change it a little bit. We've been describing the empire of the world is inescapable or is visually stunning or is uh, dangerous. And uh, let's change it now to, to live in the empire. Because now we have Esther and Mordecai living in the empire. To live in the empire of the world, here's number one, is to live as exiles. This we have in common with Esther and Mordecai. Interesting enough that Mordecai, a hundred years later, is still a Jew. A Jew in Susa. He's not been assimilated. 
Esther, not so much, but she's still keeping a secret. We'll find out in the end. She, too, is a Jew. And that's not an ethnic thing as much as it is a covenant people of God identifier, right? So we don't have to be Jewish to have this in common with Esther and Mordecai. We serve a higher king, the king of kings. But we live in the empire of the world. Jesus in John 15 said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So I I think it's pretty easy to identify with Esther and Mordecai in this love-hate relationship that they are pulled in in all directions. I think we do too. I think we have a tough time trying to figure out, okay, how do I be a good Christian? Okay, how do I be a good citizen? How do I be a good... How do I not waste my vote? Uh, How do I give back? Should I recycle? Should I let my kids watch that? Should I let my kids spend the night with them? Should I speak up? Should I keep quiet? It's a lot of shoulds, isn't it? Because we live in a place that's not our home. We're living as exiles. We've got all this stuff. It's no different than their eating requirements. We have worship requirements. Most people who are not saved look at what we're doing right here on a scale from ridiculous to sad. Why wouldn't they use their Sunday to relax? They get dressed up in clothes that don't feel good to pack into pews to sit and listen to one guy run his mouth for a while? Who's he? What authority does a man with an old book have in 2021 America? That's what they would say. We're exiles. To them, this is weird. Jesus says, no, I took you out of the world. That offends them. They'll hate you for it. Now, the Jews in this story are going to almost get killed. And Christians in other places have almost gotten killed. We might just feel like we're almost going to get killed. And given enough time, we might almost or get killed. It depends. But that's the life of an exile. Second, to live in the empire of the world is to live with the tension of identity. They're kind of both together. It's Um, maybe almost two different ways to say the same thing. But from this story, perhaps the author's intent in mentioning the two names of Esther hints at this tension. Will she be loyal to her people, the people of God, or will she be assimilated into the world's empire? Tune in next time. We'll see eventually. This is what Paul said, but our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could even talk about this better than some of us. He had dual citizenship. He was a Roman citizen. It could get him out of beatings. Well, sometimes. I don't know, some of us may have a dual citizenship. But spiritually speaking, we each do if we're saved. And what we've been looking at so far, we're only almost all the way through the second chapter, 
we're invited to look upon two kingdoms. One is in the background and quite obscure. But if you go to the other books of the Bible, they're explained in the same terms. Two palaces. You've got this magnificent palace, Persian Empire, but you've also got the tabernacle and then the temple, Jerusalem, destroyed but to be rebuilt. You've got two gardens. Did you notice that? The seven-day feast was in his garden. We might study some of this on Wednesday nights, but it's strange how both the tabernacle and the temple were decorated inside like gardens with palms and pomegranates and all these things. Looking back to where God first chose to meet with the people he created in a garden. And then you've got two banquets. Right? And we kind of compared how Xerxes brought his bride out to everybody to gawk at and to shame. And then, at the end of this book, we've got the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus brings his bride out to present her faultless in the presence of his Father with great joy. And it's up to you. Which kingdom do you want? You can have either one. Dad would say sometimes, life's a buffet. Get whatever you want, son, but you'll pay for it at the end. You always pay for it, right? And I thought, well, what do we do with this? Because we've looked on Esther and we're, we're puzzled as to where she is in her life. And at what extent do you sacrifice yourself, your riches for the, the greater cause, which she's not had a discussion about with Mordecai yet. He hasn't even overheard that there's a plot. And Haman hadn't even been introduced. So at this point it's really confusing. And I don't know that later in her life she'll look back on this and think there was a different way to go. How many of us have ever looked back on life and wondered if there's a different way we could have gone? How many of us are happy exactly, perfectly where we are right now? What would we have done different? If we have time, what would we do different from now? It's almost like a self-perpetuating thing that we think about through life at certain stages. And at this point, I just remembered something else my dad had said. Maybe this little installment today can just help prompt what he would call Lord of what's left. I don't know how much Esther's got left. How much of her choices have... She was taken, really. And when she was taken, family in the future is gone. Husband is gone. She may be the queen, but she's not Xerxes' wife. All of these things are gone. Decisions in our lives have consequences. And they open or shut doors. And sometimes we stand from where we're looking and we're going... I don't know what, how much is left. My options are dwindling. My health is failing. My outlook on, on the world, getting up out of the bed, sometimes a forecast of crawl back in and cover your head are about 70% if I got what I wanted. Sometimes it's just, Lord, be Lord of what's left. And I know what's left is eternity with you in heaven. But until I meet you and while I'm still here on this planet, after I've done whatever I've done, negotiating good, bad, and ugly with a deceitfully wicked heart, 
not only beating in my chest, but inside the chest of the people that I love the most. Lord, just take it and be glorified in it where you can. And give me courage to do what's right from this point forward. I think it's wrong to think that we need Jesus at one point in our lives and that's when we get saved. The rest of it's on us. I think we need Jesus every morning at every step that he has to be perpetually Lord of what's left because about every day we mess something up. It's like being given a fresh page after you've colored outside the lines and you've messed it up and you're worried that mom won't be as happy with it because you know it wasn't your best. And what she'll usually do is just pull off a new sheet and give you a fresh one. And it's really no different than that. She's just as happy because it's not the picture you're coloring. It's the you that she's in love with. I think that's our Heavenly Father. And especially through His Son. Lord of what's left. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for this record of Scripture and a puzzling story, a story that leaves one feeling uh, perplexed and maybe uh, introspective. Lord, we're exiles. And on a daily basis, we're, we're asked to compromise or we're asked to blend in and we're always asked to shine bright that no one puts a candle under a bushel the candle goes on top of the hill Lord take what we are and use us for your glory and for your kingdom imperfect people for your perfect purpose I thank you for time in your word and time together. I ask that you bless this congregation, their families, their lives. Lord, their hopes, their dreams. Lord, bless them in a way that honors and glorifies you and magnifies you for all eternity. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.